If you have a Bible, turn to Exodus 40 in the last chapter. I'm going to read chapter 40 from verse 16 all the way through the end of the chapter 38. Uh, Just before this, the first 15 verses are the instruction to Moses to do these final things. And what I'm about to start reading is what Moses is actually going to do then. So picking up in verse 16, it said, This Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark, that's the law, into the ark of the covenant, and put the poles on the ark and the set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put it in the place the screen put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet when they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. This is the passage that I'm really going to concentrate on Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So is the word of the Lord. With that, I invite you to pray. Pray that, pray a specific prayer. Sometimes I ask you specific things, sometimes not, but I would ask you that you would just ask God, would you show me your glory, that you would pray that, and I'll pray for us together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would make known your glory among us as a people today. Father, thousands and thousands of years ago, Moses was commanded to build this tabernacle, and he did it all as you instructed, and you you filled it with your glory because you desired to make that known to the people of Israel. And Father, I pray that we would desire the same thing today, that we would desire to know you in your glory, that we would desire to be used for you for your glory And so, Father, let us just focus on your holiness and perfection, your glory this morning as we look to your word, that you may teach us and guide us by your spirit, we pray. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said. 
So if I was going to ask you a question about what's your view of the future in relation to heaven and earth, most likely you probably have one of three different answers. When it comes to heaven and earth, first of all, you can think of it this way, is that you could think as a believer of heaven with no earth. Jesus, if you are waiting for Jesus to return, you think maybe there's my future is heaven with no earth, that Jesus comes back and he obliterates the earth and he just makes nothing left and, and we're caught up with him in heaven and the earth is no more and, and that's going to be amazing and the earth is just going to shrivel up and die and we'll be in the presence of the Lord. I would argue that that's not probably the most biblical picture because it forces us to like throw out creation and things that we've seen and things that Matt shared, like as I flew over the Badlands, I see God's glory in creation, right? And for us to think like God's going to just obliterate his creation, maybe it's a little, maybe skewed in what that, that looks like. We will spend eternity in, in heaven with the Lord, but God has created beauty and creativity and all these things that you can't just dismiss. And so that's maybe not the most accurate picture. Maybe if you are sitting here, maybe your other view of the future would be no or earth without heaven. And this is the predominant, I guess, view of the day, is that our culture, probably more than anything, a sinful culture embraces this, earth without heaven. Many people don't believe there is anything after we die. Uh, maybe live life with eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, so eat it up. This is all you have in life. You might as well just do what you want. Don't fight any fleshly impulses. Just feed you and do you, right? That's what people say. Just do you. Just do whatever you want, because after this, there's nothing anyways. And so that's the predominant view of culture is earth without heaven. But when we come to Exodus 40 and really understand the whole of Exodus, what you see is a right and biblical perspective of heaven on earth. And that's the difference, is that God, the creator, created the earth and its inhabitants, his creatures, and, and people to be in relation with him. And what he's doing from the time of the fall until Jesus comes back and now as we live in the churches, he wants the kingdom on earth. He wants to restore relationship with humans. He wants the kingdom of heaven to be upon the earth. And so to understand that biblical picture, and you have to understand what God is doing in the redemption of Israel and the redemption that we find our hope in in Jesus Christ is that he is coming and saying, the kingdom of heaven belongs on earth. I'm going to bring heaven down to earth and restore it and make it new. When Jesus walked on the earth, he brought the kingdom of God in the flesh. And so in Exodus 40, you see the tabernacle is completed. And that's the picture, right? We read about that. The Ark of the Covenant with the testimony and the lampstand outside and the table and the altar of incense and, and all this instruction we look at, that's like really like strange. And we covered the details of all that that means. And God said to Moses, I want you to build this exactly like I tell you because I want to dwell in it. I want to meet with my people. I want to be in your midst. I want to be there and meet with you as a people, drawing a people to himself. But why? Why under these terms in this way? We have a lot of questions about that. I think you have to start with an understanding of creation. Weeks and weeks ago, if you remember, we, we said that the tabernacle was kind of like a way that God was re-Edenizing the Garden of Eden in his creation. That he was kind of restoring creation by re-Edenizing here the earth. He wanted to dwell with his people again, just like he did in Genesis when he created Adam and Eve. 
He wanted to be with his people again. God's beauty and holiness and glory. It says that in Genesis that God walked with man in the cool of the garden. And he wanted to do that. And so we have to understand creation. How was it in the beginning? Because all we know is what we know now. Brokenness, ugliness, sinfulness, and slavery. You have to understand creation at the beginning, but then you have to understand where we are now, the brokenness and the ugliness and the sin. Earth is shattered and heaven is guarded at the end of the book of Genesis, or in chapter 2, rather. And man is shut out from there and it's guarded. The relationship between God and man is broken. You see, brokenness and holiness don't fit together. And God's glory has much to do with his holiness, and that doesn't work together in sinful humanity. And so God kicks man and woman out of the garden And the relationship is broken and then God, from the beginning of time, sets his plan in motion to restore man to himself. He wants to be with his people again. And so he sets this into motion. And that's where we get to Exodus 40, a plan that he could gather his people again. Damaged, sinful, broken people in need of repair. And so we know in the children of Israel, he calls them out of slavery and into something new. The tabernacle, God bringing heaven back to earth but not completely in the tabernacle yet. He will do this, as we know, in the form of his son, Jesus. But in Exodus, it's pointing towards that, right? Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come later, but in Exodus, it's pointing to all of those things. We covered that weeks ago, how all of the elements in the tabernacle kind of foreshadowed Jesus Christ. All things pointing to him, purpose of God wanting to redeem his people. And so this morning, I want to help us understand and what God did in establishing the tabernacle, and what he wants to do for his glory to fill the whole earth through his people, the church. What he did then and what he's doing now. So as I said in verse 1 through 15, the instructions Moses is given about setting up the tabernacle, and then we jump to verse 16, it's about him actually doing those things just as God instructed. We talked about that with Moses and the people. They heard the word, they received the word, and then they did it. He was obedient. And the first 15 verses, if you go back and just like skim through those, it's about God saying to Moses, I want you to anoint these things before you set them up and I want you to make them holy. I want you to consecrate them. Prepare, as if he's saying, prepare for me a place where I can dwell. And he goes through each item. He says, I want you to anoint that with oil. Then I want you to anoint that with oil. I want you to consecrate it. I want you to make it holy because God is holy. He says, I want you to take Aaron. I want you to wash him, put the garments on him, that he'll be a priest for generations. Do that to his son. Anoint him, consecrate him, set him apart, make him holy so that I could come into the tabernacle and dwell and fill this place with my glory. This goes through this process. This is like us thinking this is getting ready for the best visitor you have at your house or when you're getting ready for a king to come to place, you have to make sure everything is ready and immaculate. And this is the highest king of heaven coming in and everything needs to be cleaned up, made perfect. And it's important for us to understand that because it's important for us to understand God's glory in that way linked to his holiness. He is completely holy and cannot be approached by sinful humans. That's why the vent, the vent, the tent and the veil, if you shorten it, it's vent. The tent and the veil. That's why he says you need to put these curtains, you need to block the Holy of Holies, the place that only the the high priest could go. He cannot be approaching, so he has all these terms that, that he's setting guard by to say this is how this has to be. And he's distinguishing our brokenness from his holiness saying those two things don't fit, but I'm going to make a way 
for that to happen again. But it's on verses 34 and 38 that I want to concentrate what happened after the tabernacle is completed. I want to read verses 16 and 17, or um, 16 and 17 rather, uh, as, a, as just a way of like a time frame for us to know. Moses did according to all the Lord commanded him. So he did in the first month and the second year on the first day of this month, the tabernacle was erected. If you go all the way back in Exodus 12, the beginning of the years when God established Passover. So they were told to do that on the 10th through the 14th of that first year. So this is an event, if you think about it in our calendar, which is not the same, but if you just think about it by way of like time frame, January 1st and the next year, this is happening. So these people have been wandering, let out of slavery, wandering, given the law in all a year's time, and this is completed now. And it says all the detail of the tabernacle, like we had showed, had covered before. This is the place where God was going to dwell. And it says, so Moses has all of this set up just like this in verse 33. It says, he did all that God did that. Moses, Moses finished the work. And then it says in verse 34 something right after that. It says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Right when Moses had completed this work, verse 40, 34 comes along and says, then after that, God came down and filled. Like he was so eager that it was like, boom. He came down and he just wanted to dwell in that place. Verse 34 is incredible. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God fills the tabernacle because he wants to meet with his people. He is so eager, and I want you to know that today. God is so eager to restore a relationship with his people that he just acted right away to act on his promises, which is the first point I bring to you today. A glorious God is eager to know us. Think about that. We don't often think that way, that this God of heaven, this God of glory, this God that we cannot approach because of our sinfulness and only by the blood of Jesus Christ can we come to him. He is eager to know us. This is God-initiated. He comes down and he fills the tabernacle because he is eager to know his people. This God, whoever you think he is and whoever your view is of him, we think at times like, oh, I don't, I wouldn't know if I would think that about him. He just seems so distant. He is so eager to know us. Now, if we back up and just look at glory, because sometimes in the church we throw out terms and we're like, well, I don't even know what that really means. What does it mean for God's glory to fill the temple? I would explain glory this way, or God's glory. It's been said that it is the holiness, the magnificence, the perfection, and the beauty of all that God is presented to us. As some theologians say, it's like it's being made public. All who God is, all his characteristics, his virtues, presented to humanity, that's God's glory. It's perfect, it's beautiful, it's nothing like we know and like we are. We only know imperfection and we, we see glimpses maybe. But all of this perfect like character and perfect promise and all the holiness and beauty of God brought before us, made public the glory of God and signaled by this cloud and this pillar of fire. Can you imagine seeing this? Take yourself back there, the children of Israel, the glory of God coming down and resting, and they get to see it by, by, by day, by cloud, and by pillar of fire by night. It says right after Moses finished the work, boom, God filled the tabernacle, tabernacle easy and eager. Most of us, if we're being honest, 
if we're being honest, we think that God is mostly unapproachable. He's distant at times. So for us to read this and like, yeah, God is eager to know us, and why wasn't he invading my life right now? It's a mess. Most of us translate circumstance to our theology, right? Our view of God. God must not be that eager to know us or else he'd like make my life perfect and beautiful, all that stuff you're talking about. And so we look at God as this unapproachable God and then we look in Exodus 40 and like God shows himself as a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He fills the whole tabernacle. These people were right next to the glory of God, right? These people were witnessing this in what we would say is a tangible, physical realm form because he wanted to be in relationship. But then comes verse 35. Did you see that? Yeah, I'm saying all this stuff. And then it says, And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So here's what you're saying. You're saying God fills the tabernacle because he wants to be his people and then Moses can't even get into it anymore. That's what it says. So that's what I'm saying. God fills the tabernacle and he establishes his presence there and then Moses can't even get in. And it's like, I'm sure at this point, like Moses is just as eager, right? They've done all the work and he wants to go in and like, be with God and be in the presence. I mean, when we create things and build things, I mean, when we built this building, we all wanted to just like go live in it, right? And be in ministry or you do that with a house. And here Moses is, sets it up all the way God wants. And he's like, you can't come in yet. And I think this is an important theological truth that we have to know. It's confusing. This glorious God's so eager. And then almost is like he locks his people out of the tent. And you and I have to understand this because we are people Here's what we are when we read this. We are people that think we control everything, including God. We think that we do things so God can meet with us on our terms. And I think what I see in the text is God says, no, 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 no. I do things on my terms. And so what our second point is that this glorious God, while eager to meet us, this glorious God invites you towards him. He is the one who initiates. He is the one who invites us towards him on his terms. You see, God never allows, and if you see this, you see the theme through the scripture, God never allows us to approach him without an invitation. If you go through the the scriptures, you can see this without. He never allows us to come to him without first inviting. He is the one who always initiates as a key theological truth because we think we're in charge of our access to God and our relationship with him because we're American, right? We're in charge of everything. We do what we want to do. And when it comes to God, he says, no, no, no. I invite you to me. I draw you into me. I bring you towards me because of his love and his faithfulness. It is God who initiates a relationship. He created in the garden, and then he began to pursue man again when the relationship was broken on his terms. Think about all the characters in the scriptures Don't think about all of them right now. That'd be too much in your head. But think about them in kind of order. God is the one who calls. He went to Noah. He approached him and said, this is what I want you to do. The world has become wicked. Build this boat. Save your family. Judgment's coming to the earth. He went to Abraham and called him. Abraham, this is what I want you to do. I'm I'm going to, through your descendants, I'm going to bring my promise forth. Numerous as the stars in the sky. So will your ancestors be. Then he appears to Moses. Moses wasn't, wasn't looking for him. He appeared to him in the bush, right? God's holiness, if you remember that, God's holiness is kind of full circle. God says, take off your sandal, you're standing on holy ground, and now Moses has finished the work, and God's glory has filled the temple. He chose David. David was out in the field, the least of his brothers, shepherding sheep, 
and God found him. No, no, not all the other brothers. That's the one I want. God initiated and brought him. This glorious God who filled the tabernacle would invite Moses now and his people in when he was ready to do so. But you have to think, what would even allow Moses to come into God's presence in the tabernacle anyway? What would allow us to even be invited? Something needs to happen. Remember, Exodus is only the second book in this five-book story. Sometimes we forget about that. It's like five like movie series right here, and we're in book two and going into book three. And so if you jump ahead to Leviticus 1, 1 through 2, this is what it says. The Lord called Moses when he was ready. He had filled the tabernacle. Moses couldn't come in. But when, when he was ready, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. What he's saying there is, you're going to be coming in on my terms. It'll be through sacrifice. That's how you'll be able to approach me now, through the priestly system, the law, and sacrifice. Eventually, Moses was invited in, but what allowed him to come in? Sacrifice, bloodshed, the blood of bulls and goats because of sin, because of brokenness, because of ugliness, because sin had to be atoned for. Something had to happen for man to be in a, in a position to come to God and you and I have the same problem, right? Our ugliness, our sin, our brokenness, that's what keeps us from God. We talk about sin all the time here because it's that problem in which we need saving from. We need redemption from that. We need Jesus for that. And because of God's faithfulness, he paid for that on the cross. For us, it's not the blood of bulls and goats anymore, right? It's the blood of Jesus Christ that allows us to come into the very presence of God. God inviting us. And this is most clearly seen in the gospel. God initiates this. We know John 3.16. God sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Whoever believes in Jesus and what he has done on the cross for us, who has faith in that work, not in ourselves, but in Jesus Christ and his bloodshed, forgiving of sins, that's what brings us to God. That's what gains us eternal life. That's what makes us free and, and makes us right again. And God gives us a spirit and starts to perfect us so that we can one day be fully in his presence. This glorious God wanting to know us through his son Jesus. That's incredible. God eager to know us. God invites us towards him. And it is for that reason that God's glory ought to be our aim. That's, that's the, the purpose here, is God demonstrates his glory, fills the tabernacle, and says to my, his people, I want my glory to be your aim. Look at verse 36 and 37. It says, throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till that day it was taken up. So God essentially puts the cloud on his tabernacle, and then when he lifted it, the people could journey. And when it was there, they stayed. It wasn't like a, hey, you know, I'm feeling like we should move on today. They waited on God's direction to move all the time. God's spirit filled that place. And when he moved, they moved. And they didn't go unless he went. Now your wheels are starting to turn as a believer with the spirit of God. Ah, that means I don't move unless God moves. That means I don't go unless God directs. You're starting to see this. 
The presence and glory of God directed their lives. That's what every believer should, if that, that should be on every believer's gravestone. The presence and glory of God directed their lives. That person was redeemed by Jesus Christ, born anew by the Spirit of God, and that was their aim, that the glory and presence of God directed their lives. All that they did, they did because God was directing them in order that the glory of the earth would be all over, that God would fill the earth with his glory. Look at verse 38. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in, was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And I read that, and I was like, man, that's like visible in the sight of all the Israelites. They were looking on that day and night. And I started thinking about my own life and going, man, wouldn't that be easy for believers today if you just saw the cloud and the fire? It'd be so much easier, right? You could just see it, and when God moved, you get up and go. Like all these, like, I don't know what the will of God is for my life, and I don't know what I should do. It was so simple, right? You just look at the cloud and fire, and you just follow it. You just do it. That would be so easy, right? Wouldn't you want to live back there? Think about this. Wouldn't it just be better if I could just follow cloud and fire around? Because I wouldn't have to ask all the questions. I would just be led this way. If I could see God's glory in that tangible form, I would know how to live. I could just go where God wants me to go. Wouldn't it be easier to live? And you start thinking, I'm thinking, what? Would I want to go back there under the law with the sacrifices, the priests? Are you kidding me? It is true that we don't have the cloud and fire that we can see and follow. But then I like snapped out of it. I have the spirit of the living God in the new tabernacle. Huh. I like Oh yeah, if I could just see God move, forgetting Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory, the riches of the glory, which is Christ in you, the Spirit of God in the new tabernacle. That's why we don't go to the temple anymore. We are the temple. Believers with the Spirit of God, Christ in us, the hope of glory, the pillar of fire and cloud in us directing our lives. We have the capacity to do that. It's whether we're aware and whether we're walking, excuse me, in that way, whether the Spirit in us is displaying Christ's glory, whether we have God himself directing us, whether we are in tune to that or not. God's glory, remember, being made public to the world. Are yours and my lives reflecting that? This is for me about Galatians 5, and I'm going to just flip there and read it real quick. Many of us know this. If you're going to find the gift of the the gifts of the, or fruit of the Spirit, rather. This is what Paul is writing. I'll pick up in verse 16. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit. Now think cloud fire. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Skip down to verse 25 after he re- you know, records all the fruit of the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Here are you and I looking back, seeing God's presence was, was made known to the people that he wanted to fill his glory in the tabernacle. And it would be so easy if we could just do that. And God, completely in Christ, Jesus, when he walked the earth and he did ministry, and in John 14, when he tells his disciples, he says, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die, but there is a helper. And he starts to unpack this discourse. I'm going to leave a helper for you when I leave. 
the Holy Spirit will come to you. And that's what they waited for at Pentecost in the book of Acts. He said, the Spirit of God will come and that's who should direct your lives. Whether believers walk in tune with that or not is the question. Do we let the flesh control or do we keep our eyes on the pillar of fire and the cloud in so much that we are praying actively in the Spirit, reading God's Word, and have our eyes open to where God would direct us so that His glory could be known in the world? You and I can walk in the Spirit and be directed by it so much so that others would see it in our life. What does it say in Matthew? Let your good deeds shine before others or good light shine before others so that other people can see your good deeds and give glory to God. That's what we ought to do if we're walking in the Spirit. Somebody is in here and looking up that reference. I completely butchered that verse. I know it. All right, so I'm convicted about it right now, so you don't have to look it up and corner me in the commons later. It was all out of order. It's jumbled. Spirit will make it known to you. This glory God, this glorious God deposit, deposits his spirit in us and leads us just like the Israelites were led. That's what it says in Ephesians 1, that it's the good deposit for us. The spirit is ours, sealed with that redemption the Spirit in us, Colossians 1.27, the hope of glory in us, the hope of glory to go out and to walk and display it to all the earth. So we don't move unless God moves. We don't get to decide where we set up camp. That's why when we prayed this morning for missionaries, and I remember telling the story of Jeff and Meredith Barrett, that this is what Jeff did, and he was going to be a lawyer, and then God, you know, did this, and then he was called to a mission field, and now he's living in Albania. And, like, he was led by the Spirit. God gave him all these things, put them before him, and, and Jeff, I'm sure, could have just said, you know what, God, thanks for the law degree, thanks for the mind, for education, thanks for the opportunity, the provision, I think I'll just do what I want now. And he says, no, God, I want to be led by your spirit, I want to follow the cloud and the fire wherever you go so that your glory could be known among the nations. And so he moves his family over to Albania so that God could work through him and that Jesus Christ could be known to very Muslim, anti-Christian people for the glory of God. That's incredible. We don't move, believer, unless God moves and directs. And God knows what is best for us. He is perfect in holiness. This God, this glorious God, eager to know you, this glorious God invites you towards himself into a relationship born of his love because he is willing to display his mercy on sin and his grace as a provision through the blood of Jesus Christ for sin because of his pursuit and love. If you know anything in the book of Exodus, know that summary that God wants to be with his people. And there is a way you can know this glorious God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. To place your faith in him and on his sacrifice at the cross for the forgiveness of your sins. Not your neighbors, not the one sitting next to you, but do you acknowledge that you are broken in relationship with God and there's only one door by which you can enter. And the cross is the key to that door. And when that happens... When you repent and when you turn to Jesus Christ in faith, when you look to God and say, I need a Savior, God rushes his spirit on you and into you and says, that is my new dwelling place until you're with me again. You will walk around the earth with the spirit of God for the glory of God in your life. And that is where I dwell now. And that spirit is the new tabernacle 
And then you're led by that spirit to meet and know God, listening to his word, staying in tune. And that's, I wish I had more time to cover. How do we stay in that to walk in the spirit? Read through Galatians this week. Paul instructs, this is all, be in stride with the spirit, walk in the spirit. Stay in tune to that. Be in prayer and fellowship with other believers and staying in the word, the revealed word of God to us. If you want to know how to follow, you follow through this book. You go to this book, look at who God is. You pray and you pray with others and, and are pointed and say, I just want to walk in the spirit, not gratify the desires of the flesh. And I want to be used for his glory. Now, if you remember our two points through the series, they look like this. That God is working a good plan built on his promises, and that plan rarely plays out like we think it's going to. That this glorious God has a good plan and a promise, and it was him first that initiated. From the brokenness and fall of the man in the garden, he said, I want to restore my people. I'm going to do that, but I'm not going to do it the way you think. That's not going to work always the way that you think. And I want to, as we close, I just want to kind of flip that on its head, like one, two becoming one and one becoming two kind of thing. And I want to give you these as we close in what I think God's saying in Exodus here is that God is not concerned with our glory, but for our good. You need to know that. He is not concerned with the glory of man. He is passionate and zealous for his own glory. He's not concerned about your glory, whether you get the life that you always wanted, whether you get everything you've ever asked for, whether you get the perfect job, the perfect relationship, the perfect kids. He's not concerned with that at all. He's concerned about his glory because of his goodness and because he wants his goodness to be known in us. Our good. That's Romans 8, 28, right? He knows what's good for us, for all that, that call. I am butchering scripture today. This is very bad. I should just read it myself. He knows what's good for us. He knows. And point two, we ought to live for his glory because of his goodness. That your life, when followed correctly, following the Spirit correctly, is lived for God's glory alone. That because of his goodness, he gives you the Spirit to live for his glory. That is what these young people are, I hope, going to go do in New York. That they're going to be led by the Spirit for his glory because of his goodness that is what I pray that our congregation of people here live for, that we would follow passionately after Jesus Christ and whatever he desires for us, not for our own glory, but for his. We were called to worship this morning from Psalm 115.1, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. That is who we ought to be. That is how we ought to live. God is eager to know us. He invites us towards him to live for his glory. Let's pray. I want to leave us with this. This is our approach, our hope and confidence that we have from Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, my insert, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Go and live for God's glory, being led by his spirit. Have a blessed day. Go in peace. You are sent.